Hello and welcome back to the UFO and Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Rick Black, and today I'm going to tell you about the first widely reported case of UFO abduction in the United States, the Betty and Barney Hill incident. When this story came out in the mid-60s, most people thought that they were just a couple of nutbags, and that's exactly what the Air Force and the government wanted everybody to think. Today we have a different opinion of people that come forward with stories of alien abduction, That doesn't mean we believe them at face value, but more and more people are looking at it with an open mind and look at the evidence. Most cases don't have much evidence, but as you will hear, there's quite a bit of evidence in this case. First, who are Betty and Barney Hill? Well, Barney Hill was a pretty smart young man, and he wanted to go to college and study to become an engineer. But he was told that because he was black, that that wasn't possible. He ended up joining the Army prior to World War II. He was a marksman. He was a truck driver. Then he got a job at the post office. He worked for the post office for many years. He got married. He had two sons. But he and his wife divorced. And this is when he began a relationship with Betty. Betty was a social worker, a child welfare worker for the state of New Hampshire. She cared for abused and neglected children. Then she worked in adoption and worked her way up to supervisor. Betty met Barney at Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. Betty was working during the summers there. They dated for a few years and eventually got married. Both Betty and Barney Hill were active in the local Unitarian congregation and also members of the NAACP and community leaders. Barney sat on the local board of the United States Commission of Civil Rights. They were an interracial couple, which in the 60s was exceptionally rare. They definitely didn't want to draw attention to themselves. So, Betty and Barney get married, and they go on their honeymoon to Niagara Falls. They had a great honeymoon, and spent the day in Montreal. They thought about spending the night downtown, but decided to go ahead and drive through the night to try to get home, because they'd heard that there was a hurricane moving up the coast. It was September 19, 1961. So, they left their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, driving south on Route 3, driving through the White Mountains near Lancaster. Betty was looking out the window and said to Barney that there was a star up there that was moving. Barney said, no, that's just a satellite. The object was growing brighter and larger and then started moving. Betty had never seen a satellite and wondered, could this be a satellite? But it didn't move how you would think a satellite would move. A satellite would move in just a straight line across the sky. But this moved to the west and then came back towards them. They stopped the car, got out to observe this thing. They pulled out their binoculars to get a better look. When I first read this, my my thought was, who's driving around with binoculars in their car? But then I thought, well, they were on their honeymoon at Niagara Falls, so it totally makes sense that they would have them. So they were taking turns looking at this thing, this light, with binoculars. Barney was a huge skeptic and was trying to rationalize this. He was asking himself, is this a commercial airliner? Is it a military helicopter? He keeps trying to come up with something that makes sense in his reality. Then Barney is looking at the light and it suddenly starts heading for him at a tremendous speed. This scared Barney and he said to Betty, well, apparently it's not a satellite. It must be a passenger plane and they're obviously looking at us. So the nervous couple headed back to the car, got in and headed down the highway. There's no way that Barney thought that this was a passenger plane. Planes fly so high that even in daylight, they can't really see people on the ground. At night, 
I guess you could see the lights of a car, but what would make a plane head toward the headlights of a car? Barney said, maybe it's a Piper Cub. That's a small plane, but still, why would it head toward a car on the ground? Barney knows it isn't a plane or a helicopter, but he can't get it into his skeptical mind what he really thinks deep down. As they continue south on Route 3, Betty notices that it appears to be following them. According to their niece, Kathleen Martin, who, along with Stanton Friedman, authored the book Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, Betty told Barney, quote, It's coming closer, Barney. Then it started zigzagging and started to bounce back and forth across the sky like a ping-pong ball. At this point, Barney is getting quite frightened because he thought, if it were military pilots, they could obviously see them on the ground with the lights of the car on. He felt that maybe they were toying with them. They were really starting to get scared. It's becoming more and more obvious that this light, which they had first seen at a distance, was following them. There were no other cars on the road. It followed them for about 30 miles. Just as they were getting to a place called Mountainhead, the light left the top of the mountain, came out over the highway, and stopped, hovering right in front of them. It was about 50 feet long, metallic and disc-shaped. Barney said it was flat as a pancake. Barney has no choice but to stop the car. So he gets out, he walks into the field to approach the disc. Here, there's a problem with the story because it's hovering over the road. Why does Barney have to walk through a field to get to it? Something is missing in the story. Barney either walked on the road toward it, or it wasn't hovering above the road, but above the field. So he walks toward it until he's just about under it as it hovered at about 100 feet. With his binoculars, he sees between 9 and 11 gray, uniformed beings through a row of windows in the disc, and they are looking down at him. The disc is tilted toward him at this point. The beings were all dressed in shiny black uniforms and were described as what we now refer to as the greys, or grey aliens. In episode 5, I discussed close encounters. This falls into the category of close encounter of the third kind, when a witness not only sees the UFO, but also sees the occupants inside or near the craft. All the creatures were looking at Barney. Then, they all moved away from the windows, except for one. And Barney thought he saw arms going up and pushing and pulling on levers. Then, little red lights started to slide out from the craft on fin-like structures, and something dropped down from the bottom of the craft. It looks like a ramp or a ladder coming down, and it looks like the craft is transforming as if someone were about to come out. Barney freaks out, and he pulled the binoculars away from his face and ran back to the car. He's yelling toward Betty. He said, Betty, I think they're trying to capture us. He somehow knew that the creatures had a plan, a plan to capture them, like, as Barney put it, a bug in a net. They had to get out of there, or they were going to be captured. So he gets back to the car and starts driving, trying to escape. Now they are getting the heck out of there. They know they saw something that's not supposed to be there. They know there are creatures inside that craft. Barney's upset, and as he's driving, he tells Betty, look out the window and see if you can see them. She rolls down the window and stuck her head out of the window, but she didn't see anything. She rolled the window back up, and just as she's finishing, they heard the beeping on the trunk of the car. 
The beeps aren't like anything they've ever heard before. Barney said it was like a tuning fork being struck and placed against you. A very subtle vibration. Then both of them start getting a tingling sensation. Then, nothing. Silence, as if suspended in a dream. Then, to them, only a moment had passed, and they heard another series of humming sounds. Now fully awake, they realize that they were 35 miles down the highway, with very little memory of the drive. Have you ever gotten home? You're really tired. Maybe you work the third shift, and you can't remember the drive home? I imagine that's what Betty and Barney felt like. But not just one of them, both of them. Then they started talking to each other, and Betty says, Do you believe in flying saucers now? And Barney said, Oh, don't be silly. Of course not. On to Portsmouth. They didn't talk much for the rest of the drive, and when they arrived home, the sun was just coming up. Betty noticed after they got home that her dress was torn. That was strange, because she'd just bought this dress, and it was the first time she'd ever worn it. On top of that, Barney had a scrape on his shoe, and the strap from the binoculars was broken. Neither of them could remember how any of these things happened. They both feel a little creeped out. Betty takes the dress off. She feels like she doesn't want to be associated with it and puts it in the closet and never wears it again. Barney is trying to piece together what happened to him, or them, and he's struggling because he can't figure it out. He's a rational man, and this doesn't fit in with his rational world. Betty felt like they'd been exposed to something, like they were contaminated. She was very curious and wanted to learn more, but Barney said, don't tell anyone about this. No good can ever come of this. She disagreed. She got on the phone and called her sister. Her sister had a neighbor that was a physicist, and Betty had her talk to her neighbor to see if there's anything she could do, and the neighbor said, take a compass to the car and see how it reacts. Well, a compass doesn't measure radiation. It measures a magnetic field. So Barney went out to the car. He really didn't want to, but he did it. He took a compass and he went out to the car. He noticed about 15 to 20 very shiny spots on the trunk, about the size of silver dollars. The same color as the car, but they looked like they'd been highly polished. When he placed the compass above the spots, the compass needle spun. Only above the spots. Usually when you place a compass near a metal object, like a car with a, with a battery, the metal will attract the needle. At this point, Betty thought they should notify someone, so she called her sister again, and it just so happened that the former chief of police of Newton, New Hampshire, was there having a cup of coffee. He said to tell Betty and Barney to make a report with the Pease Air Force Base, because they had been notified, all the police departments, that if anyone had a sighting, they should report it. Pease Air Force Base is the local Air Force Base in Portsmouth, New Hampshire in 1961. Betty and Barney actually know people who work there. She gets a hold of somebody there at Pease Air Force Base who takes their story and is not really interested in it until they start talking about the extension wings and the red lights coming out. Then he's very interested in it. The next day, they get a call from a Captain Paul Henderson from the base. He wants to know the whole story in detail. So now they've told this story and it's being taken very seriously. After talking to these officers, Barney has a sense of relief because they handled it very professionally and took them seriously, and he feels like he did the right thing in reporting it. 
The Hills are made aware of another sighting that night. The controller at the tower at Pease Air Force Base reported that there was an unusual craft seen on radar at 2.14 a.m. on the night that Betty and Barney had their encounter. A few days after her UFO encounter, Betty Hill, who was still curious about it, goes to the library and checks out The Flying Saucer Conspiracy by Donald Kehoe. Donald Kehoe was a retired Marine Corps major and a former director of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. He wrote several books on aviation and UFOs, and he was a proponent of various theories explaining UFOs, government cover-ups, and the threat of interplanetary war. Wanting to know more about her experience, Betty actually writes to Major Kehoe. This kicks off her lifelong search for the truth, and what she discovers will be talked about, argued about, and studied for the next 60 years. Ten days after their sighting of the UFO in the White Mountains, Betty starts having these realistic dreams. This goes on for five nights. In her dreams, there was an encounter with human-like entities. They surrounded the car, and then they took Betty and Barney onto the craft, where they conducted a highly unusual physical examination. Because these dreams seem so real, combined with her memory of those strange buzzing sounds, Betty started to think that maybe these dreams were memories, or partial memories. She was a social worker. She had studied psychology, and dreams that you have right before you wake up in the morning, when you're sort of in a hypnotic state, can include information that really occurred, yet there can also be fantasy added. Betty initially wrote her dreams down on notepaper. She couldn't forget about them, and she spoke to her supervisor, who said to her, Maybe this represents what really happened to you between those buzzing sounds. And maybe this is what happened during that period you can't remember. So Betty sat down and typed those dreams out. Betty knew that she and Barney saw something that night, but what? What about those buzzing sounds? Why did the car have those strange shiny spots? Could her nightmares be true? Betty's letter to Major Donald Kehoe generates interest in NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. According to their records, similar-looking unidentified craft had been reported flying over California, Kentucky, and Indiana. NICAP in the 50s and 60s is one of the only legitimate and true organizations dedicated to the scientific study of UFOs. At the time, Project Blue Book was the government's arm of the Air Force that officially investigated UFOs. But as a citizen group, only NICAP and a few others actually brought in scientists, medical professionals, and had a very organized and systematic way of investigating these events. In October of 1961, a month after their incident, Boston-based NICAP investigator Walter Webb interviews the Hills at their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Walter Webb wanted to know in as much detail as possible where the sighting occurred initially, how the craft reacted, how this changed as they observed it, what Barney saw as he stood in that field. Walter Webb believed their story because they didn't embellish it. They were serious in explaining what happened. They were consistent in the details. Because he interviewed them separately before he interviewed them together, all of the details from each of the hills were the same and consistent. He thought that they were reliable, intelligent individuals with no reason to want to make something like this up. 
The scientific community, at least those who were interested in the subject, paid particular attention to the Hills and the Hills story. They were very credible witnesses with high standing in their community. They had a lot to lose. So, given the credibility, it's one of the first cases that makes investigators realize that they should listen to alleged abductees. A few weeks later, after they were interviewed by another set of investigators, they realized something chilling. They had been going over everything in depth for about 12 hours when the investigators made Barney aware that from the time they left Colebrook to the time they arrived in Portsmouth, it was closer to six hours than the four hours that it should have taken. Where did the extra two hours go? What happened during these two missing hours? It was the first case of missing time that was ever reported. Barney said, quote, It was obvious that we both had suffered amnesia at Indian Head. This is highly improbable for two people to suffer amnesia at the same time. End quote. Imagine you're Betty and Barney, and you've seen this UFO, and you've seen these creatures, and then you begin to realize there's a couple of hours missing. They started to get a, a feeling that maybe there's more to that two-hour period. I think back to my own experience with a UFO. I remember seeing it, wondering what it was. I remember Susan going into her house to get her dad. I remember her coming out to say he didn't want to come out. I don't remember what happened after that because it was so long ago. But I can tell you this. If suddenly it was two hours later and I didn't know what had happened, I would freak out. Maybe Betty's dreams were not dreams, but repressed memories coming to her in dreams. What if during those two hours of missing time, they were actually abducted by aliens? Betty and Barney don't just sit around and wonder about it. They go back to the White Mountains. They do this to see if maybe something there will help to jog their memories. In Betty's dreams, she remembered a huge fiery orb that seemed to be sitting on the ground blocking the road, and she remembers a dirt road with tall trees all around. She was confused by all this because Route 3 was not a dirt road. This whole thing, this experience from the days to the months and years, really took a toll on their relationship. Marriage is hard enough, and then you throw some possibility of maybe being abducted by aliens into the mix? Oh boy. It didn't help that the two of them had different ideas of how to handle it. Betty wanted to dig in and try to find out more. Whatever she could find out. Were there other people that experienced what they had? What really happened in those two hours? She was haunted by what she didn't know. Barney, on the other hand, wanted to keep quiet, forget about it, and make it all go away. He was afraid that it would affect their public life and his standing in the civil rights movement and everything else they were involved in. Remember, they were active members in their community, and this sort of thing could damage their good reputations. 
The way that people were perceived back then when they came forward with something as incredible as this was extremely negative. Barney was trying so hard to forget about it, but he couldn't, and it was eating away at him. Literally. He had developed an ulcer, and it was getting progressively worse. When it gets to the point where he can't take it anymore, he visits a psychiatrist, hoping to find relief. One day, he mentioned to the psychiatrist how he and Betty had seen a UFO, and he said it looked like they both had amnesia at the same time. Well, the psychiatrist said, you know, this could possibly be the cause of your ulcer. Barney prepares to go under hypnosis after years of blocking out what happened. If you have been listening to me for a while, then you know my take on regressive hypnosis. We don't know enough about the brain and memories to be sure that the psychiatrist didn't accidentally plant false memories into the patient. There could be other outside influences that influence the patient's memory. I'm no expert, but what's to keep the patient from bringing in memories from, say, a movie or some other story that they have stored away in their head? On top of that, not everyone can be hypnotized. There's a lot more to this story. I don't know if you've noticed the part one in the title, but I'll give you the rest of the story next week. You can believe what you want. You don't have to believe what other people tell you. Remember, believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. If you like the show, I would like to encourage you to help support the show. You can help me out with just $3 a month. Just go to the website and click on support. I would really appreciate the help and would be happy to give you a shout out. Is there a UFO story that you'd like for me to look into? Just send me an email at ufoandaliens_podcast at gmail.com. Before I leave, I want to share with you um, something that happened while I was recording this. I have a dog. Her name is Charlie. She follows me around everywhere. Well, I'm sitting here doing this podcast, and she's sitting on the floor. And I don't know if you could hear it in the recording, but she was just snoring softly. I think that she's my biggest critic. She's falling asleep while I'm talking. Well, I'm Rick Black, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>